As was mentioned previously, how delighted we each can feel and privileged at that to assemble in the name of the God of heaven and to do so for the express purpose of giving thought, of course, to those things commanded by Him, those things to be observed in a proper worship of the only true and living God. One of the things that Paul encountered as he came into those coasts of Athens in Acts the 17th chapter was a whole host of idolatrous gods erected and set up, and it was to them, and he said, the unknown God, the one to whom they had made a superscription, was the only one that was worthy and worthwhile and the only one in existence. The excitement that fills our heart to come together on an occasion like this one, to lift our voices together in song, to give an appreciation in prayer, and also to study a portion of the Word of God. I hope tonight as we visit another scene from the days of the Old Testament that we might be again led to understand that those things that the Holy Spirit saw fit to record are those things that can still be so helpful and can be so encouraging to each of us. Sisera and the Lordly Dish, the title of the lesson this evening taken from the fifth chapter of the book of Judges. Some thoughts that might in fact lead us to the major section of the lesson at least, these introductory thoughts. The thought of danger is often one that is so frightening. It's often that which is so upsetting. After all, we're feel fearful for our children. We would never purposefully put them in any circumstance that was fraught with danger. We always warned them. We're very careful to time and again state to them what's necessary and needful so that they never accidentally enter into a time or a station of danger. Ourselves, we often remind ourselves, those of you like me who work with power equipment every now and then, it's always best to be extremely cautious. You could lose a finger. You could, in fact, do something else greatly injurious. Danger is, in fact, all about us, not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual. It is the case tonight that though it might seem a bit surprising, we'll revisit the days of Judges 5 and learn from that some ideas to help us as we are not only aware of the danger about us spiritually, but that we might in fact approach it safely and emerge from it victorious. Sisera and the Lordly Dish, the very text, in fact the idea Derek read for us from Judges 5.25, and as we revisit the scene of that, I'd like to build the lesson in the following way. First, let's rehearse a bit about the historical scene of Sisera and the Lordly Dish. And after having rehearsed it, then we will make the applications to our lives today. At least for myself, I continually find that the best approach, and I'm hopeful that, that you would feel the same. To never strive to take a text from its context but to always strive to understand the historical setting of that and then to see what those lessons might well be. These days in the early chapters of the book of Judges are in fact extremely intriguing because in that we see the children of Israel riding off in the roller coaster. There are times that we see them faithful and then after that, after the judge dies, we see there are times that they were unfaithful lapsing into idolatry, erring in a number of ways. And often in those circumstances, God would permit them to be overwhelmed and overtaken by enemy nations. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, just to mention four. And then when the people would come to their senses, they would cry unto God. God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, who then, by virtue of the strength and character of his or her person, would deliver them from their oppressors. 
as you can see in some of these statements, it was so noteworthy to think about the blessings that Israel was able to enjoy when she was faithful. Deuteronomy 28, in fact, the first 14 verses of that chapter, highlight the blessings that would come to Israel when she was faithful, when she obeyed the commands of God, when she turned her attention away from the world and away from the surrounding idolatrous nations. God promised how greatly blessed that she would be. One of those passages that I've chosen to list is also the tragedy of Israel's unfaithfulness. Not only did God make statements of promise when she was faithful, He also made statements of great misery when she was unfaithful. Things that would beset and befall her, everything from disease to the difficulties of economy, the characteristic of bad weather, all of that would come her way and then some when she chose not to obey. You'll notice one of those passages that I've listed is Judges 2 verse 16. It was there that that reading is listed to you and to me, in which Israel, when the judge was raised up and they would follow the judge and the judge would be a servant to God and so too would Israel, she would be delivered from those oppressors. But then, when those times came that she was unfaithful, how terrible, how sad, and how miserable were the people. Think about what that suggests concerning perhaps life in this modern era. Faithfulness to God brings happiness economically. It brings happiness in terms of other arenas and realms of life. But when one is unfaithful to God, there is national misery, personal misery, and there's also misery in terms of the distrust in a nation. That kind of distrust perhaps leads us to note the first six judges. These judges in the Old Testament lists 15 of them. The first six are these, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, and then finally on to Abimelech following Gideon. As those six are listed, we notice the two that in fact are the principal ones before us for this lesson. One of them is Deborah, the other is Gideon. We perhaps will give thought to Gideon in another lesson in the not-too-far-distant future. Tonight's focus, tonight's emphasis will be the episodes in the day of Deborah. As you can see, Deborah was the only one of the 15 that was a female judge. All the others were male excepting her. And as we can give consideration to the efforts of Deborah, we find immediately that she had a tremendous emphasis in regard to the people of that day. We are not by any means, of course, stating other than what the Bible directs us to appreciate. When it says that Barak was in fact that gentleman, that individual who was the military commander, if you will, Deborah asserted some of the following statements. The enemy nation at this point was Canaan. I know that you and I are aware that Canaan was the land of promise. It was the land to which the children of Israel had journeyed some years earlier. But now, given the fact that there were Canaanites, those whom the children of Israel had allowed to stay, they did not, in fact, kick out all the people that God told them to. They did not force them to leave as God had commanded. They chose to let them stay. They chose to intermingle with them and they chose because of that to adopt their religion and to adopt their way of life. They became a thorn in Israel's side. 
After all, their idolatrous pursuits, the kind of things that drew them away from God, caused the people of Israel to find themselves in miserable estate. It is with that in mind that these bottom statements now arise. The Canaanites at this point were strong and mighty. Jabin was the king of the Canaanites. 900 chariots of iron were in his possession, and he used them to keep the children of Israel beneath his thumb. He oppressed them. He made their life terrible, hard, and very much a difficult thing. We do notice that that's when, in fact, God raised up Deborah. The commander in, of the forces, the military commander, if you will, the secretary of war, if I may call it so, of Jabin was a gentleman named Sisera. Sisera, we find, was apparently well-skilled and well-schooled in military strategy. And as such, we find that he was a very strong opponent to the, to the children of Israel. As you can see in the very last statement, we now find that our four individuals that we shall consider. On the one hand, we have Jabin and his military commander Sisera. On the other hand, we have Deborah and Barak. As you turn the page to this next idea, we notice that Deborah gave commandment. She gave orders. It's time to proceed to a military conflict against the enemy. She, in fact, had done that because the God of heaven had warned her, had encouraged her that, in fact, the enemy would be delivered into her and Barak's hand. As the first few verses of Judges chapter 4 come before us, those kind of statements are the ones that we find. The time for the armament came to pass. Although we won't read all of that chapter by any means, I'd like to ask you to observe particularly verse 15 of Judges chapter number 4. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Herosheth of the Gentiles and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword and there was not a man left." Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Eber, the Kenite. You can perhaps picture it with me. Long before there were days of tents and grenades and missiles and bombs, here was a circumstance where the fighting took place hand to hand. Things were not going well for Jabin's forces. God was on the side of the children of Israel, on the side of these that had been called into battle, the forces of Deborah and Barak. And we notice very carefully there was not a man left. When Sisera began to appreciate things in such dire circumstances, he lighted down off his chariot and began to run on foot as he fled. He was searching for a place to hide because the forces of Barak were chasing. You'll notice that he did find a place. Verses 16 and 17 make reference to there was a tent. There was a particular encampment site, and amongst the tents that were therein in place were the tents of this gentleman named Eber. He and his wife, a woman named Jael, as Sisera came running by, Jael in verse number 18 gave this admonition. 
And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he had turned into, in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Again he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be, when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there any man here, that thou shalt say, No. Pausing at that point, we notice he apparently had found a case of cover. He had found a place of safety. As he was running from the forces of Barak, Jael had opened the tent door and invited him to enter. And when he did, she covered him with a rug. He wasn't able to be seen. And he, in fact, encouraged her to stand at the tent door. And when any of the pursuers come by and ask, Is there a man here? You say, No. Seems like the perfect place to hide, doesn't it? Seems like the perfect place to be concealed from those that would be one's pursuers. At this point, as you'll notice, the story rather rapidly proceeds. He was thirsty. He asked her for something to drink. Verses 19 and 20 make note of the fact that rather than water, she opened a bottle of milk and gave him milk to drink. At this point, might we then come to verse 21. The story does take a rather dramatic and graphic turn. Verse 21 reads, Then Jael, Eber's wife, took a nail of the tent, and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly unto him, and smote the nail into his temples, and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. So he died. Sisera, as he had come into the tent, he had become so comfortable... He had become so eased that, in fact, he drifted off to sleep after having had the milk. And that does bring us to the text found a little bit later. In fact, the next chapter, the one that Derek read for us earlier. In the next chapter, as these events were celebrated by Israel, they were delivered from their enemies. Verse 25 says, He asked water, that was Sisera, and she, that's Jael, gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. And there's where the title of the lesson tonight derived. Sisera and the lordly dish. We've recounted the history of these events to this point. And after all, here was a woman. She was the one who garnered the attention because in this case, Barak, though he had the victory militarily, it was Jael that killed Sisera. It was Jael that put him to death and it was Jael that ended the terrible onslaught of Sisera and all the forces that were his. This lordly dish mentioned in Judges 5.25 is apparently something that was a part of the celebration of Israel, a recounting of the incident of the lordly dish. I would submit that tonight we can extract some lessons to help us as we reflect upon Sisera and the lordly dish. Maybe a few of these lessons might be developed beginning as follows. One of the things that so rapidly and so carefully might be observed is the ever-present need for watchfulness. Let's develop that as follows. We're going to make spiritual applications of the thought, but picture again the development that I've listed at the top and the danger that came Sisera's way. Sisera was a person who knew that he was in danger while the troops of Barak were chasing him. He thought, though, he had found safety in Jael's tent. 
Here, after all, was a family who had been supportive of Jabin, and he thought, surely, all was trustworthy and all could be trusted. And so he entered into the tent, and again, upon receiving the milk, he gently fell off into sleep, thinking nothing at all could happen to his harm and hurt. And yet, little, of course, did he know it then, but he never left Jael's tent alive. He died in that very tent. Maybe that paints a picture to you and me about how spiritual dangers can lurk all about us just as easily. Some of the thoughts I would invite you to consider are these. Is it Lot also an example here? In Genesis chapter 13, in fact, continuing on really to chapter 18, we notice that there was a man whose name was Lot. He had the preciousness and the prerogative of being, in fact, related to Abraham. And so it was that as both were blessed so mightily and so richly that the time came that they were not able to coexist. And so the decision was made. Abraham gave him the opportunity. You choose the way that you shall go and I will take the opposite. Lot chose those well-watered regions and pastures and valleys of the Jordan River And as he chose that valley, he might have thought, what a wise decision. All appeared to be smooth, all appeared to be well, and all appeared to be exactly profitable for my best interest. However, in the very next chapter, we notice in Genesis chapters 12 and 13, as that is described, Genesis 13, 18 especially reads it like this, "...the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked." you see Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. He began to pitch his tent closer and closer to that area. And oddly enough, by the time we reach five chapters later, it wasn't merely he was living in the environs of Sodom. He lived smack dab in the city. He had pitched his tent in that direction at first, but over the years and over the development of the elements, he proceeded to live actually in that wicked and despicable place that place known for its homosexuality, that place known for wickedness on every hand. And doesn't 2 Peter 2 time remind us that Lot's soul was vexed day by day with the behaviors of this place. I wonder if he ever regretted he'd ever pitched his tent toward Sodom. I can't help but believe in the finer moments he must have. For when he saw the behavior of his own wife and ultimately she died looking back to that city, what was there to look upon other than the sorriness of those that would be her sons-in-law. After all, we notice they wouldn't even leave the city. When the angels hasted Lot to leave, the sons-in-law would not go. They loved the place too much. And so it was that what one might have thought was a place of ease and safety was such a wicked and sinful place, and it cost Lot his wife, and in fact, even his daughters. Though they did escape the city, They too seemingly were beset by wicked behavior. The sadness to be seen perhaps leads us to another example. What about Peter? Here when Lot had thought that things were well with him and it turned out not to be so. Later Sodom and Gomorrah were of course destroyed. Genesis 19. In Luke chapter 22, Peter said something that sounds so remarkable. Jesus had directly said, Peter, I have prayed for thee, for the Lord, or rather for Satan, hath desired to have thee. Peter had affirmed, Lord, though all the others may depart, I never will. Even if it cost my death, 
He professed loyalty to the Master. He professed faithfulness unto the Christ. May we each never, ever forget, 31 verses later, the devil had him. He hadn't been watchful enough. That very night, Jesus had already told him, before the, cro before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, no, no, that can't happen. And yet he did that very night. In Christianity, often something that impresses upon us, the constant need for watchfulness. When we think we're at ease, the devil can always be lurking oh so carefully. And if we aren't awfully careful, he can find those ways and you too and I shall be gotten and we shall be had. Thankfully, Peter did come to his senses, of course. He did go out and weep bitterly. And as he, of course, did come to his senses, wasn't it Jesus who in John 21 said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter at first was confused by the question. However, in each case, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. And it was he, Peter, who was blessed on the day of Pentecost with proclaiming the majesty and might of that first gospel message, wasn't he? He had slipped. He had denied the Master. Could you and I slip and fall? Could our watchfulness, in fact, be called into question? Might we forget, too, sometimes that danger spiritually can lurk in unexpected places? I'm sure that Sisera never thought he'd never leave that tent alive. He thought Jael could be trusted. He thought the tent of Eber was a safe place, when in fact it wasn't. So too, perhaps things occur around you and around me. And all the while, maybe Satan is the one behind it. Maybe he is the enforcer who is bringing these things to our attention. And maybe it's he who hopes to entrap you and I in such a way that our spiritual life is called into question. Our influence is destroyed in the minds of others. Quite often we imagine our young people in that circumstance. They go out with some friends on a Friday or Saturday evening and lo and behold we get a phone call hours later, Dad, will you come pick me up? Never thinking that those friends would end up there. And yet look at what has happened. Years ago when those riots were taking place in Nashville, Tennessee, you remember in the decade of the 1960s, the scene of events there and what was taking place on a nightly basis in cities all around this country. On that particular night, there were some young boys just having a good time and a wholesome sound time. There wasn't anything inappropriate. But they happened to end up in the wrong place on the wrong side of Nashville. The groups gathered around them, began to shake and rock the car. Thankfully, the boys got out okay, but what a harrowing experience. Never when they left the house that night did they think they'd end up in places like that. Could our spiritual life also find us if we aren't watchful in some dangerous positions? Absolutely. And thus, that watchfulness is admonished in us in the following way. Some of those spiritual dangers can be fatal. Wasn't it fatal for Sisera? He came into the tent underneath that rug. I'm sure he was warm and that milk only helped him go to sleep. She brought it to him in a majestic bowl, a lordly dish. And after he fell asleep, the text says she came softly. She didn't try to wake him up and she certainly didn't try to make much of a disturbance. 
And she had a hammer in her hand and together with a tent peg, and that was it. That danger was fatal for Sisera. You and I think too about how that Satan too around us, as he brings spiritual dangers our way, inappropriate thoughts, actions, words, and behaviors, inappropriate activities under the name supposedly of the church, when all the while God's commandments have been very strict, rigorous, and specific, and as those commandments have been delivered, how loving should be our response and our dedication to them. I would invite you to look with me at these verses. In Matthew 27, verses 3, 4, and 5, a statement is therein made that has to do, of course, with Judas. Judas, not too many months or, in fact, not too many verses before, had had a desire to betray the Master. And as he did that, it was in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, fulfilling that prophecy made in Zechariah chapter 9. And as that statement, that transaction was made, what must have been going through Judas's heart and mind? Here he was exchanging this one whom he had seen and whom he had worked with now for some time, exchanging him, selling him for what was such a meager and minor amount. You'll notice in that chapter after he had gone and thrown down the money at the feet of the uh, chief priests and scribes, the text says he went out and hanged himself. Judas took his own life. Judas committed suicide. Judas ended it all because apparently he came to realize the urgency and the greatness of what he had done. As Judas did all of that, what does that perhaps paint for you and me? Judas had merely decided, and indeed it was a sinful mistake, but to betray the Master. And ultimately, when the greatness of the moment recognized in his mind what he had done, he took his own life. Can we not also appreciate that in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37... All of us are unforgettably reminded. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In a world that seemingly is so pursuant of materialistic matters, it can be easy and a great temptation for you and me to do the same. To exchange our integrity in exchange for some money, some fame, some popularity, some position or wealth. It isn't worth it. It isn't worth it. When the day of judgment comes, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Every person who has done such mistakes would gladly exchange it all if they could be reckoned faithful at that moment. Don't you think Ananias and Sapphira would easily have exchanged their position? In Acts chapter 5, just merely for the characteristic, they gave half the money, but they kept back the other half. They, however, led the apostles to believe they gave all of it. In Acts 5 verse 4, Peter directly said, You've lied to the Holy Spirit. We notice in the verses that follow, He died, three hours later she did as well. I wonder, don't you suppose it absolutely correct to say that each one would gladly exchange whatever moments of prestige they enjoyed to be reckoned faithful before the eyes of their Master? I don't think there's any question about it. What about the rich man of Luke 16? Here was a man in life that had all apparently that money or his money could afford to purchase. 
He fared sumptuously every day. He was clothed in fine apparel. It was such that his table had no lack of abundance. And yet there was poor Lazarus, one who had so little, one who seemingly had nearly nothing. He was laid daily at the gate of the rich man. But in death, notice how the roles were reversed. In death, we find Lazarus lifting up his eyes in Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort, a place almost reckoned as that of celebratory. That rich man, though, that had so much here, found himself in such a place, his eyes were lifted up in torment. He so much was interested. Now go and tell my five brothers so they will not come here. That statement of Luke 19 or rather Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, brings to our mind then the thought that to miss heaven is literally to miss everything. No wonder as these statements remind us, don't they help us see that here, what had happened in this life of Sisera, that particular section entitled, The Danger That Accords to the Fatal Character of Some, notice here that these dangers of materialism may seem so innocent but they ultimately can bring us to a life distanced from God. We can have no interest in Him. Our conscience can be seared. No wonder we need to be watchful. And no wonder lesson number three is this one. Human security. Sisera thought he had found the perfect hiding place. He thought he had found this tent, and as the others came by, that Jael could stand there and say, There's no man here. And yet she was the one that took his life. Human security, you see, is no security at all, ultimately. We need to rest our trust in a power far higher than the human family. Governments, legislators, various other individuals, although we hope and trust that they can serve the human desire, so often they don't. So often they serve themselves. So often the choices and decisions they make are against this book. And so often what they do affirm is absolutely against the teaching of God. And isn't it true that we're told we ought to obey God rather than men? Acts 5.29 Human security. Maybe some of these verses challenge us to think interestingly of this. I've often wondered if there maybe was an innocent lesson in the bowl that she used to bring this to Sisera. The Holy Spirit was very specific. She brought it to him in a lordly dish. Other translations read it as a majestic bowl. Apparently it's very pretty. Apparently it was a very attractive and enticing bowl that she brought this to him in. Maybe leading him to appreciate that all really was well. That there were no difficulties or dangers when back of the lordly dish was the hand of a woman ready to take his life. Human security is no security at all. How often have we seen the human family betraying one another in that very fashion? Maybe these examples of Philippians 3 as well as Psalm 118 would rather rapidly come to mind. Paul maybe said it best there in Philippians 3 when he said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. 
It is for that reason, he said in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul sought to make things well in such a way that things were well spiritually. He often lived in dangers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. He lived in perils of his own countrymen, perils of those that were in his nation and outside, perils in the sea, perils in the country, perils in the land. Paul knew much about peril, but he nonetheless could live by faith in the Son of God. And didn't John say, Greater is he than in us than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. That greatness perhaps leads us to notice then the great exhortation that's ours. We have come to this point in the lesson, and maybe this was the thing we could see most readily. If things with Sisera worked out the way they did, here he was entering into this tent when danger was all around him and he never even sensed it. Could sometimes that also be the case for you and me? Treading in places with thoughts, behaviors, and activities, there's danger all about us, and maybe we don't even realize it. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That text is not there as just a poetic license of good hearing thoughts. It's there because it's real. It's there because it is filled with warnings for you and for me. The devil is not interested in being your friend or mine. He's not interested in being your pal, your buddy, your playmate. He's interested in destroying your soul and mine. And he is bent on accomplishing that in any way to which he has access. In the days of Job, it was by making things hard for him. God, if you will take these things away or allow me to do so, he'll curse you. Job didn't do that. Although he lost his family, all except his wife, and although he lost his cattle, his animals, his possessions, even the degree of his health, he nonetheless could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job thirteen fifteen. Job was one who maybe can help us appreciate that even in difficult times, something far more valuable is our faithfulness. Isn't it true in some of these verses? The devil will encourage us to lift up many other things as our God. Worship your job. Worship your money. Worship your possessions. Worship your house, your car, your bank account. Worship your community, your popularity, your fame, and your prestige. And without question, the world pursues those in majestic order. But I would submit that all of us know that the finer message of the Holy Scriptures is God will take care often to bless His children with those things, to be sure, but they must not be one's God. They are only those side benefits, aren't they? Our first loyalty must be to the God of heaven and His Son. Look at these verses with me, and then the lesson will be yours. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we find there the admonition that is so very potent and so very penetrating. That admonition that comes to your mind and mine and urges us, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Doesn't it sound as if the temptations in Paul's day were very similar to today? The temptation is to conform to the world, to compromise, to bend your will so that the world will find you acceptable. When all the while Paul said, be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. That transformation, of course, is based upon Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There's where the source, the origin of each one of our faith is in fact found. That statement of Romans 12, doesn't that also highlight this? As he stated for us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the ending part of that was that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will does stand perfect and pure whether you and I obey it or not. It's just that you and I will then be found derelict if we fail and we'll be found a recipient of God's wrath. Our God is a consuming fire. The words of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 as well as Hebrews 12 verse 29. Maybe finally these other verses. In Matthew 25 verse 13. This was in the midst of that rather memorable teaching from Jesus. This occurred not long before His own crucifixion. Jesus, in the midst of this element of teaching, you recall the way it went. His apostles, four of them at least, had come to Him and asked Him, Tell us, Matthew 24, 3, When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of Thy coming? And what shall be the end of the world? We had a lesson not too many Sunday evenings in which we revisited that and we noticed that Jesus answered those questions in order. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, the answer to the second pair is provided. From that verse all the way until the end of Matthew 25, Jesus was talking about the end of time, the end of the world, what shall in fact be descriptive of His second coming. In the midst of all that, in verse 13, Jesus admonished His followers, and yea, all that would be wise, to be watchful, very watchful. Mark's version of that reads like this. No man knoweth the day nor the hour of His coming, therefore watch. The message then for you and me is to be watchful, moment by moment and day by day. We can't possibly be ready for the second coming unless we happen to be ready when that occurrence arrives or when the time of our death has come upon us. There will be no time to get ready. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 it says, In the twinkling of an eye, those alive will be changed. There won't be time to go get baptized. There won't be time to repent. There won't be time to offer a prayer of, of, of asking God for forgiveness. The time will happen quickly. We'll have to be ready. Are you ready tonight? Sisera and the Lordly Dish remind us of the need for constant watchfulness. Moment by moment, Sisera slipped up and was unwatchful. He paid the price of his life for it. May you and I be wiser. May we in fact sojourn through this life with wisdom, with desire, and ever ready to live wisely. No wonder we're admonished in Ephesians 5.16, walk circumspectly. For the days, in fact, are brief. What about you and me this night? Let us not be like Sisera, 
Let us not be unwatchful, but let us always be ready with a watchful eye knowing that the devil who is about us and who is always ready to proceed at us is one who does not have our best interest at heart. He is one described in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15 is one who in fact is able to transform himself into an angel of light. He can appear noble. He can appear good. He can appear to be wise, but all the while he is sinister. He has in fact your destruction in mind as his desire. It is with that in mind tonight the gospel plan of salvation has been presented. The Bible sets that forward for you and for me in terms and tones which allow us to be forgiven of past sins. And it prepares us to live a life of strength and encouragement, a life based not on ourselves, for human security is no security at all, but a life based, of course, on the strength of heaven. If tonight you find yourself separated from God because you've never obeyed Him, you've never yet become a member of the body of Christ, why not tonight? The baptismal waters behind me are ready. A congregation of people would be more than excited to rejoice with you and for you to watch you emerge from that watery grave, not covered in sin like you were a few minutes before. Pure and clean and whole, in the words of Isaiah 118. If tonight we could be of assistance to anyone in the audience in that way, we'd be delighted to assist in taking your confession and baptizing you. If you, though, have become a Christian, and you've known at one time what watchful living was like, but maybe you've become careless. Maybe you've become derelict. Maybe you've become totally uncaring. You've missed some services when you had no good reason. Maybe you've begun to live in a way others really can't even tell you're a Christian. You need to make some changes and you need to make them tonight. For you may not have tomorrow. You may not have Wednesday night or next Sunday. Tonight may be the only night you'll ever have. Why not make it right tonight? Come before brethren who would be delighted to pray with you and for you and who would petition God that He would forgive you. And according to the promise of the Bible, He would do that very thing as long as you'll repent and confess those things to Him. If tonight we could be of help to anyone in this audience, we'd be honored as a Pippin congregation, as a family of devoted believers to do the very thing the Bible would teach. And if we could help you, let us do it while together we stand and while we sing.